We are going to be reading the Bible together now. So if you could turn to Acts chapter 18. I'm reading from the Holman Christian Standard Bible. After this, he left from Athens and went to Corinth, where he found a Jewish man named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. Paul came to them and, being of the same occupation, stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. He reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade both Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with preaching the message and solemnly testified to the Jews that the Messiah is Jesus. But when they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his clothes and told them, Your blood is on your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I'll go to the Gentiles. So he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshipper of God, whose house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed the Lord along with his whole household, and many of the Corinthians, when they heard, believed and were baptized. Then the Lord said to Paul in a night vision, Don't be afraid, but keep on speaking and don't be silent. For I am with you, and no one will lay a hand on you to hurt you, because I have many people in this city. And he stayed there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. While Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack against Paul and brought him to the judge's bench. This man, they said, persuades people to worship God contrary to the law. And as Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of a crime or of a moral evil, it would be reasonable for me to put up with you Jews. But if these are questions about words, names, and your own law, see to it yourselves. I don't want to be a judge of such things. So he drove them from the judge's bench. Then they all seized Sosthenes, the leader of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the judge's bench. But none of these things concerned Gallio. My name's Mikey Lynch, and I'm one of the other founders, along with Andrew and Al, and we're going to be looking at Acts 18 for the next, uh, next two sermons today and tomorrow. Um, I don't know if you've YouTubed Stephen L. Anderson, seen that clip as he talks about the King James Version, but I want to lead with uh, some of his insights on uh, the Scriptures. He observes in his YouTube sermon, I keep seeing this phrase jump out at me, used by God, used out of the mouth of God. It's used six times in the Bible, and... Six is a significant number in the Bible. It's uh, the number of man. Now you say, I can't believe you speak that way. It's vile. The Bible's so wholesome. And yet the Bible says six times, him who pisseth against the wall. You say, oh, that's vile. Well, God said it, not me. Why did God say that? What did he mean by that? Stephen Anderson asks. He means there's a difference between men and women. Men pisseth against the wall. Women don't. And that expression is only in the King James Version, my friends. The New King James eliminates it. This is what the New King James says, are the males. The people who made the New King James Version are males. They're certainly not men. God says a man is someone who pisseth against the wall. That's where we're heading in this country, my friends. We've got a bunch of pastors who pee sitting down. You're saying you're being vile. No, God's being vile. God wrote the Bible. 
We've got the President of the United States, probably peace, sitting down. We've got a bunch of preachers, a bunch of leaders who don't stand up and piss against the wall like a man. Pastors used to say that a man needs to be a man, not just a male. It's because the editors of the NIV, peace, <laughs> sitting down. It's because, <laughs> it's because the editors of the New King James Version, peace, sitting down. Let me tell, let me tell you something. I'm not going to pee sitting down. <laughs> now, I don't know what word there is for that kind of use of the Bible. <laughs> but it's a ridiculous and, well, is it vile? Example of uh, how you can use the Bible, how you can apply the Bible in all sorts of ways. And we do much the same, if not quite as funny, as equally sloppy when we come to the book of Acts. We handle the Bible in a range of ways that are as messy and as sloppy. The way we weed out our uh, doctrine of church government and polity. The way some discover teachings about the Holy Spirit. And the way we get our missiology and church planting strategy from the book of Acts. It's biblical, we say, as was Reverend Stephen Anderson's sermon. It's biblical, but... What do we mean when we say it's biblical? That's the question. We often use proof texts and illustrations, finding what we expect to see and then stamping it biblical without investigating the context or being faithful to the one who wrote it. Often our arguments are from silence and so people will say, well, the Apostle Paul would never have used a venue like that. The Apostle Paul would uh, never have paid clergy and appointed them like that. The Apostle Paul would never have had Bible colleges like that. The Apostle Paul wouldn't have participated in Movember like that. I I can't see anything about work-life balance in the Apostle Paul. I, I can't see... But in a sense, who cares? Are we meant to imitate every detail we find in the book of Acts? Was the book of Acts meant to give us a comprehensive teaching of everything Paul did, didn't, would and wouldn't have done? There are big gaps in the book of Acts. Instead of this kind of sloppy, proof-texty, argument-of-silence sort of approach, we need to pay more careful attention to what Luke is saying, what God is saying through Luke. Be attentive to the purpose for which it's written. And hear it again. And that's what I want to try and do with you the next two days, try and model to you as well. And, and hopefully together we can both be thinking how to read Acts and learn from it for church, as well as hear what God is saying to us here. So I'm not going through every verse in Acts 18, 1 to 17 this, uh, this afternoon. I'm just going to be picking up four themes or four things we see here about mission practice and try and work together with you to see how we can hear what, what God is actually saying here. Let's see how we go. The first is tent making. Did you see that in the first paragraph? Tent making. Acts 18. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them and because he was a tent maker, as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath, he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. Tent making, tent making ministries. It comes from this passage, Acts 18, the idea of tent making. Some take the word here to mean cloth worker or leather worker more generally. Uh, The BDAG gives the first preference to maker of stage props, which I quite like. (laughs) Stage prop ministries. 
But most likely, we are dealing here with, um, with tent-making, given the, the Jewish lack of comfort with uh, theatre and so on. But the point's not what he made. The point is that he was working with his hands with Priscilla and Aquila. Stage props, if you like. <laughs> Tents, if you're more outdoorsy. But the point is that he worked, not what he did for the work. But more than that, here we don't find tent-making ministries in the modern sense of this is how you get into a closed, closed country. Is, um, you have to first get a degree to get in their tent-making ministries in that sense. Now, that's a great creative strategy, and praise God for those who do get into closed countries in that way. But it's not biblical in the sense that it comes from Acts 18. Tent-making in that modern sense is not biblical. It's not tent-making in the Acts 18 sense, do you see? And tent-making here is not a ministry model. You know, how are you going to go? Are you going to be a full-time ministry model or a tent-making ministry model? Um, And read the books in that section of the missiology library about tent-making ministry models because that's authentic missional connection that I work in a shoe shop in some alley in in Melbourne and and connect missionally while I tent-make with shoes, shoe tents, and that this will help me then have authentic engagement. No, that's not what this is about here. It's practically and strategically questionable anyway. And it's, at least from Acts 18, biblically unjustifiable. It's not wrong. It might be dumb. And it's definitely not biblical from Acts 18. What is it about? Well, notice verse 5. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia... Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching and teaching to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. When they came, presumably with financial support from Macedonia, he was freed up, no longer needed to make stage props or tents, and devoted himself to the word. Tent making is a necessity strategy in the first place. A necessity strategy, not a missional strategy, nor a closed country entry strategy, but a survival strategy. And it's part of a larger theme across the whole of the book of Acts to put it in context across the purpose of the book again and again in Acts from Ananias and Sapphira and the sharing of the early church right across the book. The concern of possessions and money and wealth is very important in the book of Acts. In the interpretive uh, teaching in Acts 20 where the Apostle Paul surveys his ministry in Acts 20, a very important chapter in the book as it looks back on Paul's ministry before he goes into the trials. What does Paul say? Come across to Acts 20, and we get a little commentary here that Paul provides, that Luke provides, that God provides, about how to read Acts and how to read this little paragraph. Verse 33, Acts 20, verse 33. I've not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing, Acts 20, verse 34. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. In everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak, remembering the words the Lord Jesus himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Tent making is actually about the heart and the life of the gospel. The Lord Jesus himself taught, lived and died the principle 
that he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life in service for the world. The ransom price, the great servant of us all. And so the gospel minister who serves the Lord Jesus also doesn't wait to receive, but gives to others, models to the church that to be a true disciple, to be a true disciple in Corinth is to be one not who has already become kings, but one who is a servant of all. The godly attitude to life and to money and possessions. The godly example of hard work. The godly model that leadership and ministry. Oh, the Corinthians had to get this, didn't they? Letters of one and two Corinthians, they really needed to get this lesson. For in their day, there were people, leaders, for whom power and prestige and pay all went together. They wanted the money as the leaders. But in a funny way, the congregation, the audience, wanted them to have the money as well. That it's nice to be led by people who seem to be worthy of leadership because they have the power, because they have the prestige, and because they have the clothes or the car or the lifestyle to prove it. Here's how Philo writes about the sophists. Men of mark and wealth, holding leading positions, praised on all hands, recipients of honours, portly, healthy and robust, revelling in luxurious and notorious, riotous living, knowing nothing of labour, conversant with pleasures, carrying the sweets of life to the all-welcoming soul by every channel of sense. The people in Corinth... The leaders wanted, the teachers, the philosophers wanted power, prestige and pay and the people wanted them to have it. It showed that they were worth listening to. It showed they were something. We can look for all sorts of missional strategy in Acts but often we miss the missional strategy that is actually there because it's too boring. But here is a very important strategy in the book of Acts. Our attitude to possessions, to life, to power, to wealth. The proper handling of money. I don't know if you've read uh, the old um, books by Roland Allen from the turn of the 20th century. Very angry punk rock missionary in his day who was irritated with the CMS and um, wrote a series of books basically complaining about the mess the mission field was in spontaneous expansion of the church and uh, St. Paul's missionary methods. Are they, you know, the Bibles or ours? And um, there's a lot in his writing that you could, um, you know, raise question marks over. But the heart of it is the fiery rock and roll heart of the thing is great. They're really worth a read, pretty easy to read uh, and funny in places as he slams the failures He says the dangers of pay in the mission field, the dangers of of focusing on paid pastors in the mission field is that increase in pay becomes the measure of ministry progress. The dangers of pay in ministry, Roland Allen says, is that we're tempted to confuse the work of the gospel with the work of the missionary organisation. The danger with pay in ministry is, and this one's great, the servility of mind and practice that it promotes. And I quote, It is curious how often our missionaries find dependence and timidity characteristic of their ministry workers. But the system tends to exaggerate any such weakness. 
And moreover, pay for ministry uh, can lead to discontent as secular jobs pay better and the young men uh, choose other things over mission for better pay. In a word, we often say that we wish all the Lord's people were prophets, but we generally mean that we wish uh, that they would all work diligently in and for our organisation under the, uh, the direction of our, uh, our people. Beware the power and the pull and the love of money. Man, this is an issue for church planters, isn't it? This is a relevant, practical issue for church planters and for pastors. We should be willing, because we serve the Lord who gave all for us, we should be willing to serve him while driving pizzas if we need to. We should be willing to serve him whether paid or unpaid, whether half paid, to do it for free, to do it for cheap, to get it off the ground, many of us will have to. We must not have a public service mentality, a wait for the jobs to come out at the end of the year of Bible college and find the job and not take it unless it comes with a manse or something. It will speed up missionary work if we're willing to do it. And how often growing churches do bring on staff for less than full pay because they bring them on to speed up the work and the work grows and their pay comes like the wake behind them. If we sit around waiting for some full, pa- full package and bargaining to get the best pay, we're fools and we're slowing the work and we've lost the point that we are doing it for free and pays to free us up. Beware the covetous heart, the bitterness and the envy as you look at the salaries of others, the luxuries of others the second cars and the third pair of shoes and the holidays of others. Oh, church planter, watch your own heart. Oh, church planter's wives, ask that the Lord teach you the secret of contentment. Don't seek a view of power that is bound up with prestige and power and cars and clothes and cufflinks and websites and business cards and lunches. None of those things are wrong. I love lunch and I wish I had cufflinks. None of those things are wrong, but it's the the symbolic power of them, isn't it? The dependence upon them, the being bamboozled by them. Be alert to that issue. Think very carefully about how you manage money and set up godly systems in your church to manage money. And think very carefully about how you pay those who minister in your churches. We want to look after them. We want to look after them well as they labour in the Lord. But with hotel venues and uh, all the perks in the Geneva network now, Geneva Refresh, if you heard about that, It's worth going through the assessment process just to get there. (laughs) We must be careful as a network. We must be careful that we not trust in comfort and power. We're not careerists, we're not professionals, we're not important, we're slaves compelled to preach. Slaves of the church. We want to look after you and we want your churches to look after their people. But that's the heart of the tent making of Acts 18. Secondly, and shorter, preaching and teaching. 
when Paul and Silas come, he preaches and teaches. Back to Acts 18 and verse 5. Acts 18 verse 5. When Silas and Timothy came to Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. When Silas and Timothy come, bringing financial aid from Philippi, and we read about that in Philippians 2 and 4, that they come and support and supply and provide for him all his needs. They worship the Lord by providing for him. When they come, he's freed up. He's freed up from outside to minister and preach and devote himself to that. And mission does advance when those who are gifted to preach and teach can devote themselves exclusively to preaching and teaching. You are far better off being more fully devoted to preaching and teaching and leading with the word than making shoes and building a couple of friends. You're nice, but you're just not that nice. Preach and teach and lead a community to all go out and preach the gospel. They don't need you working 15 hours a week to evangelise. They need you to lead them through preaching and teaching. The mission bears through through the word. Acts is the progress of the word. That's the great theme of Acts. And so, verses 7 and 8. Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titius Justus, a worshipper of God. Crispus, the synagogue ruler, the entire household believed in the Lord. And many of the Corinthians who heard believed and were baptised. And again, 18 verse 11. Paul stayed there for a year and a half teaching the word of God. The message of Jesus Christ, God become man to die for the sins of the world, the risen Lord and Saviour who gives his spirit to his people, going to the ends of the earth before the final day of wrath, proclaiming the message and calling all to repent and be baptised and to save themselves from this wicked generation. He devoted himself exclusively to preaching and to teaching. It was his custom, 17 verse 2 says, to go into the synagogues first, to preach and teach, and then wherever he can, to preach and teach. It was, as Acts 20 puts it, come across back there to the survey of his ministry, as Acts 20 puts it, 20 verse 20, you know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I've declared to both Jews and Greeks, they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. Preaching and teaching, proclaiming, not Not relationship building, not counselling, not good deeds, not denominational committees, not social activism, not writing letters about gay marriage, not master's courses at theological colleges you've just graduated from, not strategic planning documents and diagrams and flowcharts with prayer around the outside and arrows everywhere. Preaching the word is the priority. Preaching the word. The progress of the word. That's the hero of Acts, right? The word that spreads and bears fruit and grows. And so, church planter, it must have a priority in your time to read the word, study the word, proclaim the word, and find new avenues and platforms to proclaim the word. It must have a priority on your time. It must have a priority on your staff that you bring on people either to build that ministry of the word or to take away the clutter from you so that you can devote yourself more fully to it. It must have a priority on church money more generally. The Philippians get it. They want to free up the apostle. The Macedonians want to free up the apostle to devote himself to preaching and teaching. And we must not, church planters, you must not be ashamed and coy and apologetic about fundraising. 
You are inviting people to be partners with you, like the Philippians, to be partners with you, to be team members with you, to free you up to bring the gospel to the world. You're giving them a great, great invitation. It's a bargain, really. All they have to give you is thousands of dollars, and they get to be a part of an eternal work. That's a pretty good deal. And they get your prayer letter on top of it. <laughs> Do not be ashamed of fundraising, but it is a wonderful it's the priority investment to invest in ministers of the word of God. Tent making and our attitude to money. Preaching and teaching is the first priority. And thirdly, Jesus leads the mission. It's the acts of the apostles, yes. Ah, but did you know it's actually the acts of the Holy Spirit? Yes. Well, actually, it's the acts of Jesus. Yes. And it is, right? Acts chapter 1. I told you in my first book, Theophilus, about what Jesus began to do. Here we have what Jesus continues to do. And Luke makes the point. When we read of the Lord appearing to Paul, Acts 18 and verse 10, uh, verse 9, the Lord, this is the Lord Jesus. We read again and again of the Lord, the Lord Jesus pouring out his spirit, calling Saul, setting apart Saul and Barnabas, bringing Peter and Cornelius together. Acts 16, uh, preventing them from going, it seems, to Ephesus. In Acts 16, verse um, uh, 6 and 7, preventing them from going to Ephesus and then from Bithynia, and instead sending a vision for them to go to Philippi. Maybe because he was prevented from going to Asia back in chapter 16, Maybe for that very reason he was reluctant to stay in Ephesus in chapter 18, verse 21, but rather says he'll return if it is God's will, perhaps. In Acts 18, again we see the Lord Jesus leading the mission, the acts of Jesus. Because the Jews uh, oppose the message in verses 6 to 8. They become abusive, verse 6. And so Paul shakes out his clothes in protest and says, your blood be on your own head. And he leaves the synagogue and goes next door. There's this ministry under pressure. And at this point, the Lord appears to him and comforts him and reassures him. Acts 18 and verse 9. One night, the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. For I am with you. And no one is going to attack you and harm you. Because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed for a year and a half. Teaching them the word of God. It's the Lord's work. He directs the mission. He comforts his apostle. He has his plan and purpose. And he does it in acts in many miraculous and supernatural ways. Undeniably miraculous and supernatural ways. But the miraculous and supernatural ways, they underline a far broader principle. It's not only miraculous and supernatural ways that the Lord leads his mission. Actually, not even in Acts, is it? How did they get Matthias? They rolled a dice. How did they know that they were prevented from entering into Asia and Bithynia? Well, it's very likely they just had no way in. They were prevented, blocked by providential barriers. In Acts 18, as we'll see in the final point, verses 12 and following, we see that part of the way the Lord protects Paul in Corinth is through the non-Christian um, Gallio, 
the proconsul of Archaea. And that is part of how he leads his mission. He works supernaturally and he works providentially. The Lord sometimes works in miraculous, remarkable ways, but he always works behind the scenes, providentially, in a way sometimes you only, after the fact, look back and recognise how the Lord was at work. Supernatural or not, the Lord directs his mission. Whether prophetic vision, rolling a die, scriptural reflection, logistical barriers, or secular authorities, the Lord leads his mission. We don't need to seek prophecies. I mean, it's an absurdity to think you can anyway, right? Uh, The whole point of a prophecy is it's passive, isn't it? The Lord gives something to you. I don't know quite how you could seek a prophecy or why suddenly calling yourself charismatic would suddenly make you more likely to receive a prophecy. If he's going to give you a prophecy, he'll give it to you no matter what label you attach to yourself. You don't need to seek a prophecy if such thing were possible. You don't need supernatural intervention to be spirit-led or charismatic for that matter. And those labels are so unhelpful, aren't they? Any of the Lord's people, any who are of Christ and sons of God are led by the Spirit of God. Any who share in Christ are sharing in his grace gifts. Anyone who's a Christian is a charismatic. Anyone who's a Christian is spirit-led. Very unhelpful titles. He may grant prophecies or tingly feelings or something. And that would make things a lot clearer for some of you, wouldn't it? I can imagine many church-planting wives go, that would be good. Maybe the Lord would give me a bit more details than my husband is at present. Um, Sometimes he does do that, sure. But the underlying principle is that in all things he is working, his purpose is out. So trust in the Lord and his method of preaching and prayer. Don't waver from that. And trust in the Lord and his providence in all things. Content, patient, not giving way to anxiety or fear or anger, but rather confidence. Look at then that verse 10. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one is going to attack and harm you because I have many people in this city. I have my chosen people. And how do you respond to that, Calvinists? By preaching and praying. Verse 11. Paul stayed for a year and a half teaching the word of God. The Lord has chosen his people, and how do we respond? We go and get them. The Geneva push. We're unashamed. We're Calvinists, like Jesus and the Apostle Paul were. (laughs) And Calvinism and evangelism go together. Brothers and sisters, Yes, struggle and strive and contend and pray and plan and plot. Yes, 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 but don't despair. Don't be distracted. It's the Lord's work. He leads the mission. And lastly, Acts 18 teaches us the interesting truth of peace, secular peace and mission progress. Secular peace and mission progress. It's extremely annoying, isn't it, when you're a young Christian and you discover 1 Timothy? It just seems so um, mum and dad, doesn't it? So sensible, settle down, have good reputation. Or 1 Timothy chapter 2, uh, where we're told to pray for the government 
for kings and all those in authority, 1 Timothy 2 verse 2, so that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. It's so counterintuitive to the set the world on fire, gung-ho. I thought we, you know, we were meant to be as Christians kind of soldiers for God and now we're praying for peace. It seems like a strange verse and yet 1 Timothy is a missionary book. We pray for peace, 1 Timothy 2 says, because it pleases our God and Saviour who wants all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth because there's, there's one God and one mediator between God and man, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's for the advance of the gospel that we pray for peace. And 1 Timothy 2 raises a question over the normal rhetoric in our preaching. We don't really get it directly from the Bible, uh, but rather from later church writers that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Praise God, it sometimes is. We begin to say beyond that, however, that it's better always when the church is persecuted, that the Christians are more legitimate, we're more real and more authentic. The gospel always grows when the church is persecuted. And it's just historically not quite the case. For every China in the 20th century, there is a France of the 17th century. Acts is interested in peace. Acts 9 verse 31, it's when the church enjoyed a time of peace. Come back there, Acts 9 verse 31. It was at the conclusion of the persecution, which God did use. Yeah, God can use persecution. But it was at the conclusion of the persecution of Saul that we read in Acts 9 verse 31 that the church throughout Judea, Galilee, Samaria enjoyed a time of peace. It was strengthened and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It grew in numbers, living in the fear of the Lord. Or Acts 16 verse 19 uh, well, sorry, Acts 16 right through to 19, rather. 16 verse 19 is God's word too. But Acts 16 to 19, the whole chunk again and again is concerned. Whether it's in chapter 16 with Paul demanding to be escorted out of the city as he is a Roman citizen, or whether it's the riot in Ephesus and, uh, and the way that that is diffused there by the secular authorities, or whether it's here in Acts 18 with Gallio. It's concerned with this peaceful relationship between church and secular government. Isn't that why Acts goes on past chapter 21? Enormous number of chapters about trials. This man would have been set free if he hadn't appealed to Caesar. One of the sub-themes of Acts is a defense of the church, of the accusation of it being a troublemaking uh, subversive, anti-government, anti-civil order network. Chapter 18 in particular is important uh, because here we find an explicit secular statement of protection for the gospel. The Jews, back to Acts 18, Acts 18 verse 12, um, the Jews... When Gallio was the proconsul of Archaea, Acts 18, verse 12, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him into court. This man, they charged, is persuading to people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. This man is preaching a religion against uh, the, the permission of Rome. They're causing trouble for the Roman peace. They're causing trouble for the, the careful balancing act of the Roman god Caesar and the Roman religions and permitted religions and the, 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 uh, the liberties granted to the Jews. This man is breaking that all up. And just as Paul was about to speak, verse 14, 
We see Paul often wanting to go and speak, don't we? And he gets kind of held back. As Paul was about to speak, Gallio said to the Jews, if you Jews were making a complaint about some misdemeanor or serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you. But since it involves questions about words, names, your own law, settle the matter yourselves. I will not be a judge of such things. So he kicked them out of court. They're being vexatious. So wasting his time. In other words... Gallio here is applying the the freedom given to the Jews by Julius Caesar and Caesar Augustus. He's applying the same freedom now, the umbrella across to the Christians. None of the Romans' business. Mind your own business. This is a hot topic, this one. The Jews were always trying to push Christianity out. There had already been tensions. 18 verse 2 where we read about Aquila and Priscilla being kicked out of Italy, out of Rome, by Claudius. It's very possible this was um, what Suetonius refers to in one of those Josh McDowell quotes about um, the historicity of Jesus, that there was uh, riots in Rome because of Christus, how the Romans might have heard Christus. And, and, and so because potentially because of Jewish-Christian tensions in Rome, there had already been trouble. But the outcome here is it's not Rome's business. The outcome here is Rome need not meddle. Christianity is sanctioned. Gallio declares Christianity sits with Judaism as a legitimate religion, as none of his concern, which is wonderful news for Christianity. Verse 18, Paul stayed in Corinth for some time. Great. Although it's a tragedy for Gallio. I don't know, but... Could verse 17 be ironic? That when um, uh, the Jews turn on Sosthenes, the synagogue ruler, and beat him in front of the court and Galileo showed no concern, whatever, is his lack of concern, his comical, uh, cruel lack of concern for Sosthenes, is it also ironically in the narrative displaying his hard heart towards the gospel itself? A tragedy for Galileo, perhaps, but... Good news for Christianity. This was one of the ways, you see, that Jesus fulfilled his promise to protect Paul in the vision. Acts 18 verses 9 and 10. No one will harm you. I've got many people in the city. Don't be afraid. I've got Gallio working for me. We think when we read Acts 13 and 14, did you get this? You read Acts 13 to 14 or even chapter 17, and it seems like Paul is in a real hurry. You know, he seems to just jump from place to place really quickly. And we go, gosh, I'm not sure if I'd do that. Maybe I should do that. And we get all confused about it and wonder whether we should or shouldn't. He just seems to be running so quickly. Is he rushing? Should we aim to church plant that quickly? I dare someone to do it. Um, Well, not quite. If you go back and read carefully, Acts 13, 14 or Acts 17, you'll notice that he moves on only when he's pushed on by persecution. Hangs around for quite some time in Iconium. He leaves behind those he can in Thessalonica. He stays in Corinth for 18 months. In fact, it seems the only places where he really moves on without persecution are Corinth and Ephesus where he spends forever. When peace is granted, Paul stays when peace is granted, he stays and preaches and teaches deep. You see it in Acts 19 as well, with a parallel outcome. The 
secular government guards the church, the gospel rings out in the city. We're not to be afraid of persecution, no. We are to obey uh, God rather than men. We are to declare the gospel to those who have no concern whatsoever and say to them, short time or long, I wish you would become as I am. Yet we are not to be seditious. We are not to be rebellious. We are to honour those in authority. That is part of our missionary method. And so those who work in secular jobs, making stage props or whatever, work hard, honour your boss, give the enemy no opportunity for slander. As we deal with landlords of community halls, treat them with respect and buy them a Christmas present. As we deal with principals and teachers where we teach scripture in their schools, treat them with respect and dignity. Obey the laws of the land. Pray for peace. That the gospel may advance. So, brothers and sisters, work hard and beware of covetousness. Devote yourselves to preaching and teaching. Entrust yourself to the Lord of his mission and seek for peace that the gospel might spread swiftly. How are you going? Where is God speaking to you through Acts and challenging you? What priorities have you let slip? What bitterness is growing in your heart? What bad attitude are you bringing to the secular authorities, making your life a pain? What do you need to change by the power of the Holy Spirit? What do you need to thank God for, for his work in your life and your ministry?